We're going to be back in Luke 16 tonight. Looked at that last week. We're going to look at it again tonight. Luke 16. I've titled the message tonight, Hell-Perish the Thought. So I hope everybody stays. <laughs> Praise the Lord. All right. Luke 16, starting in verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So we titled the message last week called The Great Reversal. So both of these men, at the point they died, their fortunes were reversed. And the rich man ends up in hell, and Lazarus ends up being carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And so we said that that rich man was judged not because he was rich, but why? Because he had a lack of concern for Lazarus, which just showed his heart. He never had been saved. He'd never been regenerated. And we talked about in Ezekiel 16 where Sodom, homosexuality was just the final straw. It was the fruit of a deeper sin. And that was their idleness, selfishness, and lack of concern. It said this, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride if this isn't America, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. And this is his judgment was poured out because neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And that describes the rich man and the life he lived. But here, we're not saying, though, that you're saved by your works, are we? We're not saying you have to go out there and start giving everything away you can and help every beggar you see on the streets like that's somehow going to give you an entrance into heaven. But what is giving doing? It's just an evidence when you see a need and you're willing to meet that need, it's just the evidence that you have a new heart. And we quoted 1 John last week, but whoso has the person that has this world's good and you see your brother has a need, whatever it is, you can meet that need and you pass by him, you shut up your bowels of compassion, John said. He said, how dwells the love of God in you? So obviously he's saying if you can do that, you don't have the love of God in you, which the rich man didn't. And that was the cause of his judgment. So like I said, the solution's not 
to see how much you can give away, how much of your money you can get rid of, is it? And otherwise, if that was the case, if that's how you get into heaven, Lazarus would have never made it. If that was how we're going to judge things, because he had nothing to give. He had nobody that he could help. He was lame, totally dependent on God, wasn't he? And he is the symbol of us as sinners. We're lame and totally dependent on God. And his mercy, like the man cried out in the temple, beating on his breast, I got nothing to offer God. I, I can't offer what this Pharisee can, fasting twice a week. It, I, I have nothing to offer. I'm just a wicked sinner. And he beat on his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because like Lazarus, a sinner, you realize I'm bankrupt. I deserve to go to hell. But listen, on the other side of that, though, is after God restores us to life, what does it say in Ephesians? We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So good works are a part of the Christian life. They're just not earning your salvation, are they? So we're not going to bribe God by living wickedly but trying to do all these good things. That's what a lot of people do living in the world. They're trying to bribe God in the, in the end when they die to let them into heaven. But that's not going to work. We've got to cry out, be merciful to me. I'm, I'm bankrupt. I need your help. And then when he comes and gives you life, then that life you should be showing to others. The same kindness and love that he showed to you, we should be willing to show to others with whatever we have. So the key to understanding what's going on in this story here with the rich man and Lazarus is in verse 15. And let's read it. He said unto them, he's talking to the Pharisees, you are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So outwardly, in the men's eyes, that rich man, he seemed to have the favor of God, didn't he? God's favor. And Lazarus appeared to be cursed. That's the way it appeared. And that's the way it would appear to those people hearing that story. But at death, everything's reversed. <laughs> and why is that? Everything's brought into true reality because he said, God knows your hearts and justice will prevail. It will. So let's ask ourselves tonight, what does God see in our hearts as we sit here tonight? So what if we got these projectors? What if your heart and your last week could be projected? What went on in your heart in front of everybody here? How would you feel? That's a question to ask, isn't it? So Luke is a warning. What we're warning here is people, Christians, that just trust in the fact that they are a Christian, that they go to church, that they read their Bible, that they do religious things, and that somehow that's going to be enough. And if you would, put something there in Luke 16 and turn back to Jeremiah 7, because that was Israel's problem. They were religious, did a lot of things. Jeremiah 7, and beginning in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he says, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. But he says, Don't trust in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, 
If you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods in your hearts, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I give to your fathers forever and ever. But he says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? And so Israel would say, hey, we've got the temple of God here. We're God's favored people. He's going to bless us. And Jeremiah says, those are lying words. Don't trust in those lying words. He's saying, don't think you can live in sin and that somehow God is still going to be with you and bless you. Don't think you can lie and look with lust and cheat people and murder hate in your heart and things are still going to be okay. He's saying, you can't do that. You're deceiving yourself. God has not delivered them, he's telling them, to just continue in those sins. And that's how they looked at it. Hey, we're delivered. We haven't been attacked yet. We're still staying. And Israel's been taken into captivity. But we have the temple of the Lord. We're Jerusalem. Hezekiah has been delivered. And he's saying, oh, no, no. If you're not living right, it'll all be taken away from you. And it was shortly thereafter. And that was a mistake of the rich man. We said it last week, he thought because God was blessing him and giving him wealth, he was just doing that so he could just continue on living the way he was. He thought everything was okay. Giving him life and wealth for his pleasure is how he was reading things. The rich man. And so that's what Jesus says can happen to us. We can sit and hear and receive the word and it does nothing. Isn't that the parable of the sower? How many times have we heard Matthew 13? He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, they hear the word, but the care of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word. The things of this world choke that word and it becomes unfruitful. There is no fruit there. And we know from John 15, if he comes and finds no fruit, that is not good. <laughs> He'll deal with that tree that has no fruit. So what we have is men can be so consumed with their life in this world that they ignore the word of God, which is their life. And that's what we'll talk about next week with this rich man. He ignored the word of God, which was his life, thinking he was enjoying his life and God was blessing him. No, that wasn't the way it was. And unexpectedly, multitudes are going to be walking through this. They've heard the word. They're Christians in churches, but they haven't given heed to it. And their affections are really with this world. And unexpectedly, one day they wake up and find out it's all been reversed. And they were mistaken to their horror. They end up in hell. Open their eyes in hell just like that rich man. So let's go back to Luke 16. The multitudes will end up in a place they didn't think they would just like that rich man. You know, a 1990 Gallup poll, 78%. And this is back then. I don't know what it would be now, but probably pretty close. But 78% in a Gallup poll of Americans thought they had a good to excellent chance of making it into heaven. But listen, you know how wicked this country is. In this country, only in that poll, 4% of Americans thought they would end up in hell. Only 4%. So the bulk of Americans think they're going to make it into heaven. Why would they think any differently? <laughs> because preaching on hell 
believe me, it has become unpopular and is very seldom done. Find a preacher on TV or anywhere that's preaching on hell. Okay, so we had a lot of men, Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, they would preach on hell back in the 1700s, 1800s. And you would hear a lot of sermons that way. And all of a sudden, with D.L. Moody comes in the love gospel and grace. And hell, even though Moody used to preach on judgment and hell, it all became he's in favor of hearing love. And that became the predominant theme in pulpits through the years. And so we have today, what do we have? This is a totally man-centered culture that we live in. And hell is a topic. You bring that up, it's like E.F. Hutton spoke. Everybody's looking at you. You tell me. You tell me you bring up the subject of hell anywhere, and that's going to be popular, and especially in a lot of churches. So today in America's Christianity, what's the predominant theme? Grace. God's grace. That, I'm telling you, that is the predominant theme in most pulpits. And about the last preacher that was in public eye, I would say that I remember anyways, preaching on hell was Billy Graham. Back when I would hear him, because... He convicted me about that. Think about it, though. You don't, nobody wants to hear about hell. It's not a popular topic. But what is so amazing about grace if there is no hell? Hell is what makes grace amazing. And the man that wrote that song, John Newton, he knew he was headed that place big time. He was such a blasphemer that on a ship with sailors, they're blasphemers. That's what they are, sailors. They were afraid to be near him. He was that blasphemous. He knew the Bible. He'd been raised with a godly mother. His mother had even prayed that he would be a preacher when he grew up. He turned his back on all of that. He's as nasty as you could get. But he got on a ship one time, and that ship, they were certain it was going down, and he was afraid. And he knew where he was headed. And he cried out at first, cried out to his mother's God. But God eventually saved him, and he realized where he was headed because people knew, because they'd been told. So how can a person repent of sin, truly repent of sin, if they don't think their sin is deserving of hell? You've got to see that. You take that doctrine out, and every other doctrine doesn't make sense. The doctrine of the cross doesn't make sense if hell is not a real place. So what if you never heard about hell? What if nobody ever warned you? Because John the Baptist, the Bible is filled with warnings. What did he tell the Pharisees when they came? He says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Someone was warning them. Somebody was warning those people that they were coming down there and repenting. Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why would that guy cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And I'm personally... I'm grateful that I had people tell me about hell. From Billy Graham to the night I was out on a Friday night and I've been doing some things I shouldn't have been doing and was having a little trouble standing up. And this young man that was about my age, maybe a little bit older, had gotten saved and he was on fire for the Lord. Came up to a group of us that were hanging out and everybody managed to get away from that guy but me. And he had me backed up against the wall and he's pointing his finger at me preaching. Well, I don't really remember everything he said, but the one thing I did remember that he said was he stuck his finger under my nose and he said, if you died tonight, you would go to hell. He said it just like that. And man, that was like an arrow going into my heart because I've been listening to ACDC, I'm on the highway to hell, but I didn't want to hear it that way. 
you know, outwardly that guy would have never known what he did, you know, because I was just like, man, just get out of my face. I pushed him away, you know, and, and he left me alone. But I had a terrible night the rest of He ruined my night. And I'm glad he did because I never could get away from that. That stayed with me until I got saved that that happened. So what if he hadn't have done that? I'm eternally grateful to that guy. I hope I can shake his hand one day up in heaven and thank him for what he did. And also, right before I got saved, I, I knew I was in a bad way. I, like I said, I, I knew about it because somebody had the courage to warn me about something that nobody wants to talk about. I'm living in sin. I had a vision that I was headed to hell, the lake of fire. It, it was so real to me. I, I'm in a cold sweat about that. And I knew that's where I was headed. I was afraid to die as a sinner. I was. I'd, I'd heard enough as a teenager. I was scared to death because I knew where I would be. I just tried to run and do enough things to get it off my mind, but I knew that's where I was headed. So listen, I don't delight tonight in having to preach about hell. It's a terrible place. It's terrible to think that anyone has to go there. It really is. You know, my, my grandfather, whom I dearly loved and witnessed to, I mean, I would wake up for years after he passed away because I had no assurance and just the opposite that he made it into heaven. There was no indication that he, that just, bothered me, tormented me. I had nightmares about it. So nobody likes to hear about hell. Nobody likes to think that someone you love may be there, or anyone for that matter. Who would want to take a person and throw them into a flame that never stops? No one would. So it's an unpleasant subject. But Jesus warned us 27 times in the Bible about hell. 27 times. And I would say if there is such a place... If God justly has to send wicked sinners there, is it not love to warn somebody of that? I think it is. So why is it important to hear about hell? Because the Bible speaks much about it. Thirty times in the Old Testament, hell's used. Jesus spoke about it over 25 times. And you have Revelations 20, 21, and 22 clearly talk about the lake of fire where the devil, his angels, and the wicked will be cast. And the content, we need to hear about it. It's a place of endless torment where millions upon millions of people will end up. 95 million people die every year, and in the next hour, 11,000 more are going to die. And a lot of those people, I don't know how many, will end up in an eternal hell. It's terrible. The other reason we know is death is not a spectator sport, is it? So let's eliminate the rapture. Everybody in this room is going to die one day. And every single person in this room is going to be in one of two places. They're either going to be enjoying the bliss of heaven or they're going to be in eternal torments in hell. It's, there's no in-between. There is no other place. That's where it is. And so I think tonight it would always do us good to have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the most godly people you'd ever want to meet, he made a resolution that whenever he felt pain from whatever the source, he was going to think about the torments of hell. And that any suffering he had to have in this life was worth it to avoid that place. Because here's how it works. You think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. You're saved if you endure unto the end. So the warnings that the Lord gives us and the warnings of hell, because didn't he say, don't fear them which can kill your body, 
He's talking to disciples. But afterwards, they have nothing else you, they can do to you. He says, don't fear them. I'm telling you ahead of time whom to fear. Fear him that after he's killed your body has the power to cast body and soul into hell. And so the elect, those that are truly his, his sheep will heed those warnings. And that's why they're given. They're not to put fear in us like we have to worry that we're going there. But it will cause us to live right. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. A warning can be love. In 1984, in this highway in the south of London, there was this dense fog that came. And they had warning lights, warning drivers coming up to that on that highway that there was trouble ahead. And all of them, almost all of them, ignored the warning lights and just kept flying on down that highway. And a truck... A big truck had spilled its load over and had had a crash, and these cars just kept running into that. Ten people died. Thirty cars were wrecked. And so they sent some policemen there, two policemen, and they're waving their arms and shouting at these cars because they know what they're headed to. They went up the road. They're waving and shouting, and they just ignored them and kept speeding on down the road. And out of frustration, knowing what was happening, because they could hear these cars hitting, these policemen were picking up the cones on the road and throwing them at vehicles. Out of frustration, trying to get their attention. And one guy said, I am just in tears, because he could hear that sound back there and knew what was happening. Now, was that love to warn them, or should you just let them go on in? That's what love will do, won't it? With tears sometimes, warning people. And God in his love, listen, he has warned the world of hell, hasn't he? Because everyone has a conscience, and that conscience says, when you do something wrong, saint or sinner, even this person that's never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have a conscience that tells them, you have done wrong and you deserve punishment. It's guilt. Everyone's got that. That's one way God's warned us, and by his word, does he not clearly describe what hell is like and who is going to end up there? And what about the cross? That is really probably his, the biggest warning because God's punishment of his son tells us how much he hates sin. You read what the Lord Jesus Christ went through, a literal hell on that cross? Oh, it shows God's love, doesn't it? More than anything else, but it also shows us dramatically God's hatred of sin. You want to know what he thinks of sin, of just a lie? Oh, what's a lie? Everybody lies. Most Americans lie. Well, you look at the cross, and that's what God thinks of a lie or covetousness. And it tells the world, hey, that's God's love, but it also should be a forewarning is this is the punishment that awaits those that reject this offer of love, this free pardon that was given would be a warning that way. So we're back in Luke 16, and let's see what we can learn about hell from this story, from this place. And I think there are seven things we can learn about. And the first thing I want to look at is that prayers are unanswered in hell. And that's, we see that in verse 24. And he cried, that rich man, it says he cried and he pleaded, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And that cry means to call and speak out loudly. Didn't we just talk about Hannah crying out? And there's numerous places where you have the blind man and different ones, the Syrophoenician woman. It talks about them crying out to the Lord Jesus. And he hears them and helps them, doesn't he? But that cry in hell to someone that's there doesn't go anywhere. 
And he goes on in verse 27, it says, And then he said, I pray thee, therefore. He's praying, help me. Help my brothers. So there comes a time, a lot of people, no one likes to hear this, but there comes a time when it's too late to pray. So if you would, turn back to Proverbs chapter 1. Just put something there again. Beginning in verse 23, Proverbs 1.23, God says this. And I look to like to look at this section here. It's a sandwich because it begins and ends with a promise to those that will repent. God says, I'll be with you. I won't forsake you. You turn to me, but in between, it's not good. But Proverbs 1.23, he starts off saying, turn at my reproof. Just turn. He says, behold, the Lord says, I'll pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known unto you. But he goes on to say, but because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have set at not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. Now, this is God in heaven says this in verse 26. He says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. He says, then shall they call upon me. But what does he say? I will not answer. They will seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. And therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. So that's a good warning to us, isn't it? To pay attention. Even the young people and teenagers, this is the time to heed the word of the Lord and to give your life to the Lord and to seek him. And when you're reproved by the word or however it happens about your sinful life, to turn to him. Because he says, now is the time to seek him. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah 55? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Because there's a warning right there. There comes a time when it's too late. Like you die in a crash. Unrepentant as a sinner. It's too late. Now is the time. And back to Luke 16. So there is a time when prayers are unanswered. And the second thing we say is, that hell is a real place. It's a real place because a lot of people, if you haven't heard it, you'll hear it sometime. If you ever talk to somebody, they'll say, how do you know hell is real? Has anybody ever been there? You ever been there? How can you say that hell is real? I hear this all the time in prison. I'm living in hell. I'm like, well, this really, it's bad. It ain't near that bad. Not when you really know what it's like. But you'll hear those kind of remarks. How do you know it's a real place? But look what it says in verse 28. He's pleading with Lazarus. He says, I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And so I would say to somebody, you don't believe it's a place, I would say the words of the Lord Jesus Christ should settle it. He says it's a place. And when he talked about Judas... In Acts 1, it says that when Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. So it's a place. It's a real place. 
It's not an imaginary place. So we're still there. And the third thing we can see from this about hell is that the wicked have no name there. No name. Look at verse 23. And in hell he lifted up his eyes. The rich man in his parable never has a name. Lazarus is named. Abraham is named. And he's called he. And I don't think that was a mix-up there that they left it out. Because what do rich people do? Trump Towers. What do they like to do with their name? They like to proclaim their name and think they're leaving it for everlasting generations to come to see it. That's what they like to think. And I'm sure that rich man worked on his name. Well, here comes Mr. So-and-so. What a great man he is. With all Mr. So-and-so has, he's going to be remembered. And I talked to a guy one time. He says, man, the way I think that it's going to be, he goes, I always want to have kids so my name just goes on. That's the way he looked at life. That's, that was his goal. Five sons to carry on his name, so on and so forth. But the thing is, does that carry weight with God in eternity? Ecclesiastes says this, If a man begat a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, an untimely birth is better than he. For he comes in with vanity and departs in darkness. And listen to the last part. It says, His name shall be covered with darkness. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Your name never to be remembered again. And you thought you were so important. You had it up on a billboard or on a building or wherever. You like people talking about your name. Proverbs 10:7 says, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. So names are for who? He's going to give us a new name, isn't he? Names are for those that live in light and fellowship. But in outer darkness, what are you going to have need for a name for? You're not going to see anybody, and they're not going to see you, and there's not going to be any fellowship down in hell. None at all. And the fourth thing we see in Luke 16 is there is no mercy in hell. Verses 24 and 25 say this, And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. So all through the Psalms, if you read through the Psalms, it will talk about the mercy of God that he shows to his people. Psalm 31, I'll be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities. Psalm 66, blessed be God, which has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy for me. Psalm 86, 5, for thou, Lord, you're good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. And can I get an amen? Amen. 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 <laughs> That's the way God is, even for sinners in this life. Even if tonight you're here and you realize, man, I'm not feeling good about what you're talking about, putting a little bit of dread in me, those will apply to you. You call upon him, he'll have mercy upon you. He will. And I would encourage you to do that. This isn't to condemn anybody, but to encourage us if we need to, to repent. Because there's a time when mercy is gone. And it was for this man. James 2 says this, 
For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. And if you would, turn back to Psalm 109, saying there's a time when mercy is gone. Y'all just have to hang with me here. Psalm 109, verses 1 to 16, beginning in verse 1, says, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I gave myself unto prayer. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. And let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he has, and let the stranger spoil his labor. And let there be none to extend mercy unto him. Neither let there be any favor to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. There it is again. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because... Why? Here we are again, back in our story. Because he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. So we need to be sensitive to anybody that we know that has a need. Shouldn't we? If we're Christians, we should be more than willing to show mercy because of the mercy God has shown us. Because was that man asking for a lot? This man in hell I'm talking about, was he asking for a lot of mercy? What did he ask for? He said, could you just dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue? That's all he was asking for. That doesn't sound like much, does it? And he's denied that. But let me ask you, was Lazarus asking for a lot? All he asked for was a crumb. And it said he was longing strongly desiring he obviously was not doing well obviously he was starving obviously that man in this life had more than enough to give him and had no concern and jesus says if that's the way you live your life no mercy on the poor now you'll get absolutely none then so where was the love of god in that rich man The fifth thing we see, if we could go back to Luke 16, is that hell is a place of torment. We see that in verse 25. But Abraham said at the end, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are not just cut off from God. He says you are tormented. It means to cause severe pain occasioned by punitive torture. In other words, pain is being afflicted. And it's where they get the idea of the rack from when they used to torture Christians and stretch them out. 
and torture him in that way and cause severe pain that went throughout their entire body. So listen to this. I couldn't come up with it any better than Jonathan Edwards. And so listen to how he talked about this matter. We can conceive but little of the matter, talking about the pain of hell. But to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven or a great furnace, where your pain would be much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire, as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour in this great furnace for just 15 minutes, full of fire, and all the while full of quick sense. By that he means you can feel it all. He says, what horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? 15 minutes you're placed in a hot furnace. He says, you, after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be for you to think you had to endure another 14 after you've been in there just one minute? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years. Huh. Oh, then, he says, how would your heart sink? if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end and that you would never be delivered. He says, but your torment in hell will be immensely greater than this illustration represents. How then will the heart of a poor creature sink under it? How utterly inexpressible and inconceivable must the sinking of the soul be in such a case. It's quiet in here. It should be. It is terrible to think about that that is actually going on. People have gone on the other side of the veil, and that's what they're experiencing. It's terrible. So terrible that a lot of evangelicals now are saying, is that really what the Bible teaches? Can God really be that cruel to do that? And they're saying, maybe we read the Greek wrong. But the Greek's not been read wrong. But the worst part, or one of the worst things, is in verse 25, you will be conscious and have a memory. The memory. Look at verse 25. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. He tells him, Remember. Well, the only way you're going to remember anything is if you've got a mind that can remember. And they would be tormenting memories. You're dealing with the pain, but you're also having to deal with those memories. Memories of all the good things that you had at one time. But where are they now? He told them, remember, you had good things. Memories of your mother's smile. But where is she now? Your friends, the smiling of your friends. Memories of all the pleadings of the servants of God asking you to repent of your sins, that you wouldn't have to go to this place that you chose to ignore. The prophets pleading with the people. All the lost chances to repent, you'll remember all of those. I seriously thought about it and just decided that's not what I was going to do. 
decided I'd just put it off. I used to think like that when I was a teenager. I used to think, yeah, I know I'm going to hell, but when I get to be about 40, I'll get my life cleaned up because I'll have kids in, and I don't want my kids to be like I am now. And I used to think, I'll take care of it all then. And then I realized I might not ever make it to then because I had too many close calls with dying, being messed up in the head. And God spoke clearly to my heart. He said, you're playing Russian roulette with your soul every day you wake up. Every day you go out there, you're just hoping that that bullet of death, so to speak, isn't going to, because you'll be in big trouble. And that whole endless eternity that never ends would come to me, and I'd be like, man. And that's how God dealt with me. Memory of all the time that was wasted. Conscience and be able to remember the whole time, for all eternity, that you blew it. And the worst thing of all, the seventh thing is, we just basically talked about that, is it is permanent. Permanent. Verse 26, he says what there? And besides all this, he tells him, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. It's like a great divide. If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, it's like this huge chasm. There is no crossing over from one point to the other. It's fixed. Punishment is fixed. The Lord tries the righteous, it says in Psalm 11, but the wicked and him that loves violence his soul hates. And upon the wicked he shall run snares, fire, and brimstone in a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup, and it'll never end. As one man said, the fire is everlasting, the punishment everlasting, and the destruction is an everlasting one. The smoke of their torment, Revelation 14, ascends forever and ever to the wicked. And they shall be tormented day and night, Revelation 20, forever and ever. Once again, Jonathan Edwards says this, The more the damned in hell think of the eternity of their torments, the more amazing it will appear to them. And alas, they will not be able to keep it out of their minds. Their tortures will not divert them from it, but will fix their attention to it. Oh, how dreadful will eternity appear to them after they shall have been thinking on it for ages together and shall have so long an experience of their torments. The damned in hell will have two infinities perpetually to amaze them and swallow them up. Now, this is, to me, terrible, too. One, he says, is an infinite God whose wrath they will bear and in whom they will behold their perfect and irreconcilable enemy forever. I mean, if you love the Lord and you know what the Lord Jesus Christ, could you imagine? They will have to know him as their irreconcilable enemy and that he hates them and will always hate them. That's terrible. And he said the other they have to endure is the infinite duration of their torment, knowing there is no getting out. Because most of the time you're in pain or you get in an uncomfortable situation, relief eventually comes, doesn't it? It does. But not there, and you know it's never going to end. And you know that God forever hates you and is actively has his wrath poured out on you. 
Because it's not going to be like what you hear in the media. It's not going to be the devil's having a party and he's throwing people around. It's not going to be like that. The devil doesn't reign in hell. He'll be in the lowest part. God reigns in hell. He reigns everywhere. Man, you could start weeping right now. So in conclusion, I would say, how will you end your life? What if it was tonight? Where would you be if it was tonight? And you don't know that it couldn't be. There's no one in this room can say they're going to be around tomorrow. Because the Bible says you can't say that. That's an arrogant statement to make. And so what if your life did end tonight? Who would you blame? Would God be unjust? Have we not heard the gospel here? We've heard the gospel, haven't we? So have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's how Thomas got saved. We did a devotion one night on hell. Nothing wrong with that. The fear of God is a motivator. I don't think it should stay that way. I think you should know the love of God. But you should never lose the fear of God. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's why to take out preaching about hell and the reality of what it is, as unpleasant as it is, you're doing no one a favor, saint or sinner, either one. Because what does that mean then when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you look with lust, you're going to keep lusting. He said, you will end up in hell. Those are his words, not mine. It's a deterrent because the righteous will say, hey, my flesh, I could give in to my flesh and lust, but I won't. You know why? Because I got a fear of God. That's what the design of that is. You're going to have unforgiveness. Didn't we talk about that? In Matthew 16, you're going to harbor unforgiveness. And where does Jesus say you'll end up? So are you a holy person? Are you intent on killing sin in your life? I like what this man said. He said, if you want to assure yourself that God has saved you from hell, then set to working, killing sins. As you persevere by God's grace from day to day, the conviction will deepen in your heart that Christ is indeed your Savior. Killing sin is a birthmark of the Christian. And isn't that what Romans 8 says? If we walk according to the flesh, what does he say is going to happen? We're going to die, but he says what? If you, by the Spirit, kill the flesh, you'll do what? You'll live. So that's not a false statement he's making there. Killing sin is a birthmark of the Christian. So I would say, lastly, how much is the momentary pleasure worth? How much of sin, the momentary pleasure of sin, worth? Demas walked with Paul, must have been faithful. Paul talks about him several times. He had all the signs of a believer. You would never think anything otherwise. But at one point, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. The present world did him in, drew him away. And which do you love more? We got to ask ourselves, which do we love more, this present world we're in or the Lord Jesus Christ and his demands? So let me end with this verse, Matthew 16. If any man, Jesus said, will come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. So I would say to us that are here in Christians, we know we have a hell to avoid and sin to kill, and we have a Savior to love that took that hell that we deserved on that cross. And out of love for that, we should be willing to do anything he asks us to do. Amen? Amen. So let's just heed the warning we have here out of Luke 16. And I'm saying, I know there's people that aren't saved in here tonight. And let the fear of God motivate you. Today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. As Paul would say, get right with God tonight. Tonight's the night. You may not have tomorrow. God may never speak to you again if he's spoken to you tonight. You don't know that he will. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the warning that you've given us here. It's a sober warning, Lord. And it's caused our heart to be sobered, but I just ask, Father, that you'll make this a reality to us. We know this is a place that millions go to and ask us that you'll give us hearts to be led and plead with sinners, Lord, to get right with you. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'll give us right hearts that we will be willing to kill sin, Lord, and to follow your spirit that we can say one day we don't have to go to hell, but we can see you and you will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant that you strove to enter in in that straight gate as hard as it was. You held on to my hand and pled for my grace, and I brought you through. And I just thank you, Lord, that you'll do that for us here, and you'll speak to all of our hearts today, Lord, everyone in this room. And we thank you for your word that you've given us and this warning that you've given us tonight in your grace and in your love. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.